Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Wednesday, February 7th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a podcast this is, that is dedicated to prayer, devotion, scripture reading, and Bible study. Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listing over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all covered from a biblical worldview. My brothers and sisters in Christ doing a wonderful job over there. I would definitely encourage you to go on over there and listen. I will guarantee you, you're going to find something over there to listen to, and there's a really good chance you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. All right, well. Wednesday, we've hit the middle of the week. Uh, we should we are wrapping up our study in John chapter 17 this evening in the evening segment, and then God willing, we'll get into John 18 throughout the, the end of the week. But let's go ahead and open up this morning for our Bible reading here uh, with the fourth day morning prayer called True Christianity. Let's pray. Thy goodness is in I'm sorry, Lord of heaven. Thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable. In the works of creation, thou art almighty. In the dispensations of providence, all wise. In the gospel of grace, all love. And in thy Son, thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin. The justification of our persons. The sanctification of our natures. The perseverance of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terrors of thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry unclean, we have a fountain for sin. Though creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in religion, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light, zeal, confidence but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence upon Jesus, but by our love to him, our conformity to him, our knowledge of him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the spirit, that profits by every correction and is injured by no carnal indulgence. Amen. All right, morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for February 7th. Uh, the text is from Micah 2.10. Arise and depart. The hour is approaching when the message will come to us as it comes to all. Arise and go forth from the home in which thou hast dwelt, from the city in which thou hast done thy business, from thy family, from thy friends. Arise and take thy last journey. And what know we of the journey? And what know we of the country to which we are bound? A little we have read thereof, and somewhat has been revealed to us by the Spirit. But how little do we know of the realms of the future? We know that there is a black and stormy river called death. God bids us cross it, promising to be with us. And after death, what cometh? What wonder, what wonder world will open upon our astonished, astonished sight? What scene of glory will be unfolded to our view? No traveler has ever returned to tell, but we know enough of the heavenly land to make us welcome our summons, our summons thither with joy and gladness. The journey of death may be dark, but we may go forth on it fearfully, knowing that God is with us as we walk through the gloomy valley, and therefore we need fear no evil. We shall be departing from all we have known and loved here, but we shall be going to our Father's house, to our Father's home where Jesus is, to that royal city which hath foundations, whose builder and, whose builder and maker is God. 
This shall be our last removal, to dwell forever with him we love in the midst of his people, in the presence of God. Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. This veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of bliss. Prepare us, Lord, by grace divine, for thy bright courts on high. Then bid our spirits rise and join the chorus of the sky. All right. Our reading for today, and hang on a minute, I need a little bit of water here. Angel, I hope you took a drink too. All right, our reading is going to be, let's see, Exodus 26 and 27, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 30, Psalm 31, verse 1 through 8, and Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 11. So Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of nine of fine twisted linen, excuse me, and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful designer. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain, outermost curtain in the one set. And likewise, you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 loops in the one curtain, and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. You shall make 50 clasps of gold, and you shall join the curtains to one another with the clasps so, so that the tabernacle will be a unit. Then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make eleven curtains in all. The length of the length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall have the same measurements. And you shall join five curtains by themselves, and the other six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth, sixth curtain at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and you shall put the clasps into the loops and join the tent together, so that it will be one unit. The overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that is left over, shall lap over the back of the tabernacle. The cubit on one side and the cubit on the other, of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent, shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle on one side and on the other to cover it. You shall make a covering for the tent of ram skins, dyed red, and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then you shall make the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood, standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There shall be two tenons for each board, fitted to one another. Thus you shall do for all the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty bases of silver under the twenty boards, two bases under one board for its two tenons, and two bases under another board for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, twenty boards. And there are forty bases of silver, two bases under one board, and two bases under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle, to the west, you shall make six boards. You shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They shall be separated beneath, but together at their completion at its top, at the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. There shall be eight boards with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, 
two bases under one board and two bases under another board. Then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle and five boards for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. The middle bar in the center of the board shall pass through from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as builders, I'm sorry, as holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful engineer. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four bases of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and you shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put... You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Exodus 27. And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of the same piece, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pots for removing its ashes, and its shovels, and its bowls, and its flesh hooks, and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar, so that the net will reach halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side there shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, one hundred cubits long for one side, and its pillars shall be twenty. With their twenty bases of bronze, the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Likewise for the north side in length there shall be hangings one hundred cubits long, and its twenty pillars with the twenty bases of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. For the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits with their ten pillars and their ten bases. The width of the court on the east side toward the sunrise shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. And for the other side shall be hangings of fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. And as for the gate of the court, there will be a screen of twenty cubits of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver with their four pillars and their four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands, with their hooks of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be one hundred cubits, and the width fifty throughout, and the height five cubits of fine twisted linen, and their bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in all its service and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And you shall command the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, 
Aaron and his son shall keep it in order from evening to morning before Yahweh. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. Matthew 25, the first 30 verses. Then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like the man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you handed five talents over to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you handed two talents over to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Therefore you ought to have put, put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away, and throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Psalm 31, the first eight verses. For the choir director, a psalm of David. In you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness protect me. Incline your ear to me. Deliver me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a fortress to save me. For you are my high rock and my fortress. For your name's sake you will lead me and guide me. You will bring me out to the net which they have secretly laid for me. I'm sorry, you will bring me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Yahweh, God of truth. I hate those who regard worthless idols, but I trust in Yahweh. 
I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul, and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. Finally, Proverbs 8, the first 11 verses. Does not wisdom call, and discernment give forth her voice? At the top of the heights upon the way, where the pathways meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she makes a shout. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O simple ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand a heart of wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal upright things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my discipline and not silver, and knowledge rather than choices fine gold. For wisdom is better than pearls, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. All right, that is our reading for the day. I thank you for spending this time with me. I, I would continue to pray that you do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for this evening's segment. We're going to go ahead and close out with prayer from Valley of Vision. Uh, this one is called Jesus, My Glory. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, thou hast commanded me to believe in Jesus, and I would flee to no other refuge. Wash in no other fountain, build on no other foundation, receive from no other fullness, rest in no other relief. His water and blood were not severed, and their flow at the cross. May they never be separated in my creed and experience. May I be equally convinced of the guilt and pollution of sin. Feel my need of a prince and savior. Implore of him repentance as well as forgiveness. Love holiness and be pure in heart. Have the mind of Jesus and tread in his steps. Let me not be at my own disposal, but rejoice that I am under the care of one who is too wise to err, too kind to injure, too tender to crush. May I scandalize none by my temper and conduct, but recommend and endear Christ to all around, bestow good on everyone as circumstances permit, and decline no opportunity of useful, usefulness. Grant that I may value my substance, not as the medium of pride and luxury, but as the means of my support and stewardship. Help me to guide my affections with discretion, to owe no man anything, to be able to give to him what that needeth, to feel it my duty and pleasure to be merciful and forgiving, to show to the world the likeness of Jesus. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the th Wednesday, February 7th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, well, we're going to get back into our study of John 17. We're actually going to finish it up this evening, but let's go ahead and open up in prayer real quick. We're again doing prayer from At the Throne of Grace, book of prayers from John MacArthur, um, put together by his children. And as I've said before, we start with a reading of scripture and then go into the prayer. Um yeah, this is decently long, so let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, the text is from James 1, 17 through 27. 
Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of weakness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. All right, let's pray. Precious Father in heaven, we gratefully acknowledge that every perfect gift and every good thing we have ever received is from you the Father of heavenly lights. We confess that we do not deserve any good thing at all from you, so we can only stand in humble gratitude that you have given us so precious a gift as eternal life in Christ. In the exercise of your sovereign will and in accord with your eternal good pleasure, you brought us forth out of spiritual death through your word, that imperishable seed by which we are born again to a living hope. Human language does not contain words sufficient to express our thankfulness for the salvation you have brought, wrought in us. When we think of the magnitude of your mercy and the immensity of the grace you have bestowed on us, we earnestly desire to be doers of the word, living emblems of the perfect righteousness and overflowing grace to which we owe everything. And yet, Lord, we sorrowfully acknowledge our stubborn sinfulness and the desperate wickedness that remains in our hearts and continually causes us to sin against that inexhaustible grace to which we owe everything. Endow us with the power and the will to lay aside what remains of our sin and humbly receive the engrafted word that is able to save us. Graciously equip us to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, mortify the deeds of our flesh, cast off the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Those are all the things that are pleasing in your sight, and therefore we know you will grant the request. In fact, your beauty is on display for all to see, in your goodness and graciousness to us as unworthy sinners. We are awed by the promise to all who trust in you through Christ that all things are ours and that your divine power has granted, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Because you are for us, we know that no one can be against us. Because you justify us, no accuser can condemn us. Your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, having died for our sin, risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, secures us and is even now at the right hand of your throne, interceding for us. We praise you, Lord, for the, these precious promises that nourish and gladden our souls with infinite comfort. We fall back on such words of hope in times of need and sorrow, humbly acknowledging your faithfulness with profound gratitude. Meanwhile, it is to our own deep shame that we are fickle and untrustworthy. We know that if, even when we are faithful, you abide faithful. Your mercies are new every morning. But keep 
I'm sorry, but help us to lay hold of your promises, not merely for comfort and hope, but also as motivation, encouragement, edification, and an example to follow, as we seek more earnestly to be faithful. We thank you that nothing can ever separate us from love, revealed in Christ, your Son, and shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You have spread before us an abundant table full of good things, more blessings than we could ever know or imagine. Cleanse us before we feast at your banquet, so that nothing may hinder the worship. We offer you now in prayer. We ask these things in the name of him who has who was delivered up for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. And now our devotion for this evening from Thomas Watson's um, Glorifying God uh, for February 7th. The text for it is from Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the poor, or I'm sorry, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is to be the enjoyment of God in the life to come. Man's chief end is to enjoy God forever. Before meeting God in heaven, there must be something previous and antecedent, antecedent, and that is our being in a state of grace. We must have conformity to him in grace before we can have communion with him in glory. Grace and glory are linked and chained together. Grace precedes glory as the morning star ushers in the sun. God will have us qualified and fitted for a state of blessedness. Drunkards and swearers are not fit to enjoy God in glory. The Lord will not lay upon lay such vipers in his bosom. Only the pure in heart shall see God. We must first be daughter. I'm sorry. We must first be daughter glorious within, before we are clothed with the robes of glory. We must have the anointing of God and be perfumed with the graces of the Spirit. And then we shall stand before the King of Heaven. Being thus divinely qualified by grace, we shall be taken up to the Mount of Vision and enjoy God forever. And what is enjoying God forever but to be put in a state of happiness? Just as the busy, I'm sorry, just as the body cannot have life without communion with the soul, so the soul cannot have blessedness without having immediate communion with God. God is the chief good, therefore the enjoyment of him is the highest pleasure. All right, hang on a minute, I need a little bit of water. All right. Well, like I said, we're going to be wrapping up John chapter 17 today. And I'm sure we're all very grateful for that. It's been a long slog through John 17, but it's very, very, very critical um, that we do this, that, that we plug our way through this. So, you know, um, just to lay it back out really, really quick, um, as we know, this is the real Lord's Prayer. This is between Jesus and God, the two parts of the triune Godhead, um, the Son and the Father. Um, and, and it's Jesus communicating to God um, a basic prayer of requests, requests about him, requests about the disciples and requests about all other believers. That would be us, the church. Um, and again, none of these are selfish requests. And we, we do know that, you know, I mean, the fact is Jesus is praying with the will of God. He's praying, praying with the mind of God. They are one. He states it repeatedly. They are one. Therefore, what he is praying for is the things that God wants him to pray for. So, I have to ask the question. I actually brought this up last evening, but I have to ask the question: Why would God be pay, or why would Jesus be praying this out loud? And the reason He's praying it out loud, and I take this from looking at the previous context, chapters thirteen through sixteen. He's been trying to strengthen the faith. He's been trying to lift up 
these disciples who things are falling apart on. And we've talked through that, so I'm not going to go into all those details. But we've talked about how things are falling apart for these disciples, particularly the fact that their teacher, that they know is the Messiah, the Son of God, but they expect to put into place the kingdom of heaven here on there on earth right at that time physically because they misunderstand what the purpose of the Messiah is in this state. They, they just don't get it. They're, they're, they're expecting an earthly. And as I've, as I've told you before, um, it's, it really kind of freaked me out when I turned around and heard Ben Shapiro, who I love to listen to and in, in a great deal of agreement with him about many, many things secularly talk along these same lines, these same lines that, that these disciples and that, the Jewish people, because please, you know, I mean, it'd be easy for us to sit here and bash the 11, except the thing is they've got the same mindset as their culture. I mean, it's a cultural mindset and it still is among, among Jews today that they see the Messiah. That's why they don't believe the Messiah has come yet. They see the Messiah as coming to put into place a worldly kingdom where they will be safe, where the Jews will be safe. Those, the, the chosen of God, um, though again, they still misunderstand because they think it's those that are of the bloodline of Abraham. Well, the fact is Jesus is very, very clear that there are children of it's, it's about the children of Abraham in spirit, who are those who believe in Christ, who are those who truly believe in God and don't just, don't just take, um, take part in the outward signs. Um, we've even talked about that before circumcision, the outward circumcision is supposed to be, was supposed to be a representation of the inward circumcision of the heart. And that's not what they, that's not what they understood. They thought, Oh, somebody's circumcised. They're, they're magically a Jew. They magically have saving faith. Um, it's, it's like growing up, um, you know, it, it used to be in the South. And, and again, I grew up out here in Arizona, but my whole family is from the Southeast and it was a thing. It, it was always, uh, where do you live and who are, who are your church people? You know, who are your people and who are you, who's your church? Where do you go to church? Um, and it was, oh, you go to church. Oh, you must, you must be a Christian. I mean, it was, it was, you grew up there, you grew up with your family and everybody just assumed you were saved. Well, that that's not so. I mean, I did too, even out here in Arizona growing up. Yeah. I mean, the fact is in the town I grew up in, it was a little town here in Arizona and everybody had their own churches. Um, so everybody going to their own churches, but, but almost everybody went to church. Um, and you just assumed that you were a good person, that you were a Christian. So no big deal. Well, you know, obviously it, I, I didn't come to salvation until I was almost 40 years old, um, because of that, because there, there's that misunderstanding. Well, again, they're, they're misunderstanding here. So Jesus is praying. And, and so with, with what we've seen Jesus do from chapters 13 through 16, I don't think I'm taking a big step in saying that he prays this out loud. One, he's praying to the father. This isn't, this isn't a farce. It's not a put on show, but he's also proclaiming this out loud, this prayer that he's going to say anyways, proclaiming it out loud to continue to strengthen these disciples. Because again, he prays at the beginning, first five verses are about him, um, that he would be glorified and that God would be glorified. And, it, you know, and as much as he's praying that to God, um, be, and, and, and be glorified, actually, let me clear, finish that, be, be, sorry, realized I didn't finish that thought, be glorified in the fact of completing God's plan for salvation for mankind. So he's saying that, making clear to them that this is what's coming again, trying to clearly lay out, this is expected. It's okay. It's okay. 
and they're just, they're still struggling with it and they're going to, and that's okay. We would too. So I'm not saying that to bash them. We would too. And then he goes on verses six through 19. He's praying for the disciples. And we see the first part of that in verses six through 10, where he sets up to them clearly. Here is why God is going to answer, answer me. Here's why God is going to answer me. And he's not saying that to tell himself that he's, he's saying it out loud to make clear to them that God is going to answer this prayer I'm making for you because you've believed. And that's the first part, but also because God gave you to me, God gave you to me as my inheritance, as a gift. And he's already said to them previously, he gave you to me and I will keep you and I won't lose you. So he makes that very, very clear. Then we come to this verses and then we come to the two requests he makes there, um, in verses, um, 11 through 19, it makes the request for spiritual protection and sanctifying purity for the 11 because they're go, they're going in. I mean, that's the thing. He's being removed. They're going to be the ones under attack now. He's been a buffer for them. They're going to be under the under attack. They're going to be physically under attack and they're going to be spiritually under attack and they're going to be under attack as far as purity. They're going to need to walk their walk of sanctification purely to have the strength of their convictions, the strength of their walk to back up the message they're bringing. So then we got in, again, we got into this verses 20 through 26. We got into this section talking about the, the, where he's praying for all believers, praying for all believers. So it's all of us that came to a saving faith. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that there is the disciples word again, the gospel. So it would be the 11 plus Matthias plus Paul, and then any, any that came as disciples of them, like Timothy, like Titus, that, that we see that Paul generates Barnabas who, who, you know, came out of Antioch there with Paul, you know, we see that Silas, you know, it would be the teachings of them, but from the new Testament, that's the thing. That's what he's talking about. So we see there, we see this first part, this request for true unity, this beginning part of it, that that they would be unified. And in this, the, the second part, verse 24 through 26, the request that we would all be one day reunited in glory. We would be reunited in heaven. That's what he's talking about, reunited in glory. So we looked at the first two parts of this last week and last night, since Monday we didn't do this, um, where we looked at the fellowship of future glory and the focus of future glory. And so we're, what we're looking at this evening is the foretaste of future glory. And this is going to be verses 25 and 26. So John 17, verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, few things we want to look at here. So right off the bat, just like we saw early on, um, I'm trying to find, try to remember, blah, 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 going back up. There we go. Uh, verse 11, um, where Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And again, he's very clear, you know, yes, he wants to keep them in his name. And we talked about it being kept in God's name. God's name is the whole of him. It is the whole of him. It is the entirety of him. So keep them in yourself. But he particularly lays out holy. I mean, why else would he say it? I mean, yeah, he's giving him honor, 
but he's also proclaiming, keep keep them in your holiness. Well, we see it here, him go again, righteous father. He's pointing out the righteousness. He's labeling the righteousness. Yes, again, he's honoring God. He's honoring his father, but he's also pointing out clearly to these 11 that God is righteous. Therefore, what he does is going to be righteous. Again, like I said, continuing to try to strengthen them, to, to make them confident in the task that God has set them for and in their ability to complete it. But then he goes on and we see this. And again, if we just kind of barge through this, it can feel a little bit like gobbledygook. It's not. Jesus is saying something very clearly, but he goes on. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. Now, we see this repeatedly. We see this repeatedly throughout. Um, and honestly, oh, I didn't record that verse. I'm sorry. Give me just a second. Um, I should have put this one down and I didn't actually copy it into my notes. Um, let's see. Um, I was like, um, Uh, where did it go? Oh, did I not? I did. Oh yes, I did. I'm sorry. I did write this first down. Sorry. I thought I had, sorry. I, I had to check that out. But again, we see that repeatedly that, that although the world has not known you, so this is Jesus in reference to God, it has not known you yet. I have known you and these have known that you sent me again. He's speaking of the intimate knowing that intimate knowing that not, not an intellectual ascent, but a soul deep knowing. And he's being clear. The world doesn't know you. Um, and, and this is something he stated previously before. Um, the, the not knowing is not believing, not believing, not truly following John three eighteen. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. He hasn't believed. John three thirty six. he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So again, it's very, very clear here that they've not known him. The world doesn't know him. I mean, all you have to do is look at the world around us and know that the world does not know Christ. And they didn't in the first century. We've talked about it, um, how the Jewish religion was completely false religion. Uh, the world was, I mean, the Roman world was so horrifically pagan and so twisted. And we see this build into, I mean, the fact is Paul is killed by Nero. Um, who was one of the worst, but so was Caligula. And I mean, I mean, just the stories. And I, obviously, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail about that. But needless to say, they they made Sodom and Gomorrah look like a choir practice. Um, and Sodom and Gomorrah were horrific. So again, this is really what we're looking at. The world obviously does not know God. But he goes on, but I have known you again, trying to get across to these, these disciples and to you and me. I mean, this message is for you and me too, that yeah, you're right. The world does not know him, but Jesus has known him. And because of that, you and I and these 11 know that God sent him because he's the only one who is known. Um, John 1 18, no one has seen God in any time. 
the only begotten God, that's referring to Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's the only one who knows him. Um, Matthew eleven twenty seven. all these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Uh, John eight fifty five, and you have not known him, but I know him. And he's speaking to the Pharisees there, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Again, the know there, the know there is that intimate knowledge. He's making clear to the Pharisees there. He's making clear to that world right there that they don't know God. But he does because he was sent by him. And that's what he's saying here to the 11. And he's saying to you and I, and that's his prayer for us, that in God's righteousness, we know that although the world doesn't know him, that Jesus does. And he goes on, and I have made your name known to them, meaning he's made the entirety of God known to the 11 and to us and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Again, so that the love with which God loved him would be in us and Jesus would be in us, that we would truly manifest the walk of Christ, the Christian walk, that we would truly manifest that love, that we would understand that love. That's the whole point of knowing him is Jesus making clear to us through the teachings that come through the New Testament and through the, honestly, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which removes the scales from our eyes and opens us up to be able to take this in, to not have, as, as I preached on Sunday, to not have eyes that see and don't perceive, ears that hear and don't, and don't understand, hearts that are dull, heart being the center of the being, not, not feelings. Please don't misunderstand that. That's not what they talk about when they say heart. They're talking about the center of the being that doesn't understand. Um, and that was in Matthew 13, quoting from Isaiah 6. Uh, again, this is making clear to us that the Holy Spirit is making this making this available to us. But he's making clear that no matter what is happening with the world out around us, and no matter what is, what is happening in the world out around them, again, at this point in John, we're within hours of Jesus being arrested. Actually, I think it's in the very next chapter he's, or he's arrested, but he's within chronological hours of being arrested. So, of course, these guys are going to see that, you know, I mean, they know this is the son of God. This is the Messiah. He came from God. We know he did. We know this. But the world's going to come and arrest him. They're going to beat him. They're going to whip him to, to where the bones are showing in his back. I mean, through the skin. It's torn up so badly to where he's not even recognizable. And then they're going to nail him up on a cross and kill him. They're going to murder him. It's, it's not a legal trial. They're going to murder him. Even, even the Roman representative there, the governor there, won't accuse him and punish him. He turns them over he turns him over to the Jews and washes his hands of it. Now, that doesn't that doesn't abrogate his guilt in allowing this to happen. The fact is, he should have stopped this. If he was really doing his job, he would have stopped this because there was absolutely no legal means, no le legal reason for Jesus to have been tried, for Jesus to have been found guilty, or for him to have been murdered on the cross. 
There was absolutely no grounds for any of that. I mean, that's what makes what we call Good Friday, and it's not really Good Friday, it's Awful Friday, because that is the most heinous crime ever committed, ever have, ever, ever committed in the past, and ever will be committed on this earth, is the murder of Jesus Christ. That is the most horrible, horrible crime that, that was ever committed and will ever be committed. But that's why he's saying this is, yes, the world does not know me. The world does not know God. Thus, the world doesn't know me, but he makes clear, but I know you, God. And he's saying that in front of them. I know you. And because of that, these know that you sent me. Because of that, we should know that he sent us or that he sent Christ. We've got to remember. And the thing is, we've got to look at these verses in the context of what? The totality, the, what, what the whole purpose is of the gospel of John anyways. And I really haven't brought this up in a while, but it should be, I mean, I know I probably drive you Oh, Let me back up one. Sorry. I know it probably would drive you nuts. And that's why I stopped doing this. But John 20 verse 31 is the summary. It states clearly what the purpose of this gospel is. So I'm going to read it to you. But these have been written talking about all the miracles that were written about all of all of the all of the teachings Jesus gave all his his upper room discourse the high priestly prayer John is saying but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name so that's what we're seeing here in John 17 that's what he's doing this here i mean that's the purpose of John's gospel but that's why God John recorded this here because Jesus is praying this and Jesus is making clear to them, yes, I came from God. And because of this, and because I know God, and because I've obviously come from him, these do know this. Thus he's saying, please bless them. What he's trying to be clear is, is that the father is righteous. Again, verse 25, oh, righteous father. So the father will take care of them. Again, like I said, in the context there between, you know, John 13 through 16, as he's been trying to lift them up. And even as he's made these requests in their hearing, I mean, he's making them in the open that they would understand that the father is going to take care of this. Again, I have made your name known. I have made God's name known to these, to the 11 and to the church, and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in the 11 in the church and that Christ would be in the 11 in the church. That's what it's saying here. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. And that is what he is praying here in the close of the high priestly prayer. All right. Thank you for spending this time with me. I, I thank you, you know, for taking that you've taken the time. I continue to pray that our time here in the scripture helps us to grow in our understanding of the scripture. As I always say, I hope you have a wonderful night. Um, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Let's go ahead and close out with the fourth day evening prayer. It's called God all sufficient. Let's pray. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and earth are thine. The world is thine in its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. Thy wisdom has managed all its multiple concerns, presiding over nations, families, individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee, are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace. How excellent thy loving kindness that draws men to thee.
Teach us to place our happiness in thee, the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth, or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, find our heaven in thee. Thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. Though we are fallen creatures, thou hast not neglected us. In love and pity thou hast provided us a Savior, applying his redemption to our hearts, by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions, have mercy on us. We are weary, give us rest. Ignorant, make us wise unto salvation. Helpless, let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. Poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. Perplexed and tempted, let us travel on, unchecked and undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Blessed be thy name. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful night, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.